Today, we have the privilege to sit and talk with Dr. Ellen Tennyson. Today, we talk about his wild ride of ministry over the years, an absolute bizarre childhood story, and his passion to teach the Bible. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. My name is Amos J. Olivares, and I serve here at Cedar Valley on the pastoral team, and I am your host. This is episode number five of our Lean Into the Messy conversational podcast. Whether Cedar Valley is your home church or not, maybe you don't even go to church and somebody turned you on to the podcast, I'm so glad you are listening. You can expect this podcast to be honest, fun, because we can all use a laugh and provide godly perspective on the messy of life. Everybody's got a little messy in their life and nobody wants to talk about it. It's good to talk about it. There's a lot of healing that comes from just talking about your messy, laughing about it, crying through it. Let's be honest. Oftentimes we create our own messy and sometimes people bring about messy in our own lives. And even uh, there are times where messy just comes our way, totally uninvited. Today is extra special because I have a very special co-host with me. Her name is Lauren Lotterell. Hey, Again, thanks for tuning in today. And Lauren, thank you so much for being here with us. Sure, glad to be here. Uh, so Lauren, you just had an unbelievable experience. You took your boy Jack to New York. Tell the people why. True story, we had our own wild ride. We took a road trip for him to play baseball in Cooperstown, New York, home of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And his team, it's all 12-year-olds and played against 73 other teams from across the United States. And they went five and three. And Jack got to pitch in four of the games. One of the games, he had a complete game, 120 pitches, two home runs. Oh, that is fantastic. That is unbelievable. So, Lauren, the people may not know uh, some of your backstory. So, let me just share. You're born in South Carolina. Yep. Right? But lived in California. So, you got both coasts. Uh, studied in Colorado, got your Master's of Divinity in Colorado, um, and then now life in Minnesota. So of all the experience you have in the States, where's your favorite place? Ooh, the the good answer is Minnesota because I really do call it home now and I really love it. But there's really nothing like living in San Francisco and being on the coast with the weather and the food. So you've got a beautiful blend of like Southern culture, which is like all hospitality. And fried chicken. Well, of course, fried chicken, fry it, right? That's South, that's South Carolina. And then you've got like the West Coast, California kind of stuff. Or the best coast. Or the best coast, right? Where it's always a, just a little breezy. Yes. Right? Uh, all right. So we're here with Dr. Tennyson. Thank you so much for being with us. You are also from Southern California, right? I am, uh, at least as a Minnesota transplant. I lived in Los Angeles. I, really, when people ask where are you from, I'm a Kentuckian. Okay, so, so I grew so up got, in Kentucky. We got some two Southerners being yes. on the West Coast. And then you've got your Mexican friend from New Mexico. Amen. Right? Yes. Gloria Dios. <laughs> Gloria Dios, that's right. All right, so we're here in the booth and we are excited to get into the podcast. Uh, Dr. Tennyson, please give us first uh, just a snippet of your life in ministry. It's been a wild ride for you. Give us a little bit of that story. So I have served in ministry. Of course, I grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, so in one sense, I was born in ministry because when you're a pastor's kid, as, as you well know, and you well know, uh, your, your children are part of your ministry and they're very much affected and involved in that. Uh, I was a youth pastor, served as an executive pastor, moved to Los Angeles to work on my doctorate and then quickly became a pastor at the church I was attending there and then ended up staying there for 15 years. 
where I just continue to do whatever they need me to do at the church. So started off a singles pastor, become a teaching pastor, become director for the school of ministry at our church. And it just kept growing, you know, this, this, and that. Uh, but then moved to North Central uh, to be a full-time faculty member. So I was an adjunct for about 10 years in LA uh, as a kind of a circuit teacher going from campus to campus. Eventually one campus let me come in as visiting professor, but I always joke, they tell you in the title, you're not gonna stay, right? You are a visiting professor. And then when North Central came calling, it just felt like this was a divine moment where I was moving not out of a pastoral calling, but shifting to a training for pastors. And so I came to North Central uh, about 12 years ago, uh, started attending this church uh, that same year, my wife Rhonda and I, and then this church has been our church home since then. Uh, our son was born here, so our son is a Minnesotan, and he will tell you that, he is a Minnesota boy. Uh, and this has been the only church he's ever known. So North Central is actually where I met Dr. Tennyson. Um, maybe I followed him there from California, who's to say? Um, but I enjoyed working with him for the three years that I was there. And what we're most excited about is that Dr. Tennyson is our keynote speaker for Cultivate Conference. If you're in the area, mark your calendars, Saturday, September 10, 8.30 to 12.30. It's gonna be all about leadership and how to lead and invest and influence in your circles, whether that's in your workplace, at home, in your church, in your area of ministry, love to have you here. Dr. Tennyson does an awesome job of combining knowledge with practical application. He brings the 30,000 foot view and the 5,000 foot view, melds them together and helps us figure out what God has to say and how to live it out. And you're exactly right, Lauren. Um, I, I absolutely agree with everything you said about that, Dr. Tennyson. We are really looking forward to hearing you uh, at our upcoming Cultivate Conference. So our podcast, Lean Into the Messy, uh, our goal is to try to identify people within our church who have a particularly messy story. Uh, you have an unbelievable childhood story that uh, is, it is a shocking story. It, it's crazy to hear. When you told me the story, I was blown away. And I know it's had a significant impact on your life. Lauren, you know his story. And it's going to be great to hear. So would you share the story that uh, from your childhood with our listeners? Absolutely. So my church was uh, the church I grew up in. My parents were the pastors in Kentucky. Uh, Radcliffe, Kentucky was the inner city of Fort Knox. Uh, we had a growing church uh, growth. Uh, my parents took over the church. They had maybe about 50 members. And at this time we grew to about 800. Uh, and this is in rural Kentucky, and it was just vibrant ministry, vibrant community, mostly a military community. And so you had the added benefit of having people who knew how to care for each other as military, but now a church community that knew how to care for each other. And so it was this community that loved each other two times over, right? Uh, we didn't have a great youth group for part of that. And it was this weird thing that as the church grew, the youth group didn't grow along with it. And there was a lot of reasons for that, but eventually my parents, hired as a youth pastor, and this is back when all youth pastors are volunteers, right? So hired as a youth pastor, the local vice president of our bank, uh, who just came to them and said, he was already acting as our choir director and his name was Chuck Kita. So my mom always called him brother banana, but Chiquita, right? Chuck Kita uh, comes in with a love for youth and ability to preach something that he just never really exercised before. And the youth group went from 20 to 70, almost overnight, uh, through the ministry of this incredible youth pastor. So every year we would go for an amusement park. Uh, we'd go to amusement park in Cincinnati, Ohio, Kings Island, and it would be our big youth trip for the year. 
And so we had a church bus, which was an ordinary school bus. Uh, it seated uh, 66 people. So you have 22 rows on the bus, three people can sit in a row, plus the bus driver. So, so 67 total. We maxed out the bus. Wow. on this day because our youth group had never been in this large before. Uh, we invited people to bring their friends and we actually couldn't fit everyone on the bus. So people had to get into cars to follow the bus. And so we had this small caravan going up to Kings Island for that day. Uh, while we were there enjoying our time, there was a factory worker uh, in Kentucky who was getting off work for the weekend. His name was Larry. Uh, Larry uh, went out with some friends to drink and then met some friends at another bar and went drinking and then met some friends and got into a house to do some shots. And Larry had recently lost a ton of weight and was still drinking in a different weight class uh, than he had been. Mm. And at well the said. end of the night, uh, basically was, they took his truckies away from him and told him, buddy, you're too drunk to go home. And he convinced them, he only lived a mile from his house. He said, it's one mile, give me the keys, I can make it. But when he got the keys back, uh, he, rather than getting to his house, he got on the interstate, Rather than getting on the right ramp, he got on the wrong ramp and was now driving on the opposite side of the interstate, a full blast, not realizing what he was doing. It was that time that he met our church bus. So we were on our way home. It's late at night. We're trying to get back. It's a Saturday night. You know, we got to get back for Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so we're headed back. We're actually going around a mountain, you know, in Kentucky, a small mountain. And so we couldn't see him because he was coming from the other side. When we saw his headlights, the state police would later say our bus driver, who was also our associate pastor, probably had maybe a couple seconds to react before impact. Uh, we hit him right headlight to right headlight. Our youth pastor was actually standing on the stairs of the bus where the impact occurred. Um, uh, the axle was driven underneath the bus, gas, gas tank was punctured. Of course, sparks are now flying. It sets the gas tank on fire. Fire sweeps under the bus, starts coming up through the sections of the bus and catching the seats on fire. When that happens, as it gets hot, we had a lot of helium balloons on the bus because of amusement park. So as those balloons start going off like little bombs. And this is also the 80s. So a lot of girls on our trip had hairspray and their purses. Uh, because back in the 80s, remember the hairstyle, oh, yeah. always spraying your hair, those went off, right? All of this is happening within a few minutes. Uh, this is the school bus before they put in exit windows, because the reason we now have exit windows is because of this crash. This is what changed the law. So everyone is trying to get out the same exit door in the very back. Uh, eventually they say within about four minutes, it was 2000 degrees inside the bus. Wow. Uh, I was one of the first ones out because I was sitting in the very back uh, setting right on the edge. I was fast asleep when the crash occurred. Uh, I actually didn't even hardly knew we crashed. I heard someone scream behind me and I jumped up and turned around, faced an open emergency door. And at that moment, everyone surged and I got knocked off. How old were you? I was 15. What happens is everyone starts running and I just see feet running. I have a hat on, ball cap, because I'm a Kentuckian. So I have a ball cap on, you know, I can only see the feet. I don't know what's going on, but I have the good sense of follow everyone who's running. So I'm just running, finally recognize a pair of feet. I, I, I recognized a pair of feet because it was this really tall guy in my youth group. And I looked up at him. He had been, you know, when the crash happened, it cracked his chin because it drew of his head forward on the seat in front of him. So he's bleeding profusely from his face. And I look at him and I just like, am I dreaming? You know, I ask him and he just, he's not even looking at me. He's looking past me. And that's when I turn around and see a church bus that fully is in flames, engulfed, and kids are still coming out of it. Wow. So at that moment, I, I'm still not sure what's happening, you know, but I know, oh no, something's going on here. Uh, we have a registered nurse who's driving by at the very time of the crash. 
she happened to have a bunch of blankets in the back of her car. So she jumps out, she grabs blankets, starts throwing them over kids, right? And we start laying a lot of the burn victims in the median. Uh, eventually, you know, it's kind of chaotic. It takes a little time for the state police to arrive. Uh, the state police, first one who gets there, I go up to him because I'm still a pastor's kid. And all the adults were killed in the crash, except for one. Uh, and she was a visitor. She actually collapsed outside the bus. We didn't know her, she didn't know us. So I'm 15 and I'm one of the oldest people out there from the church. So I go up because in my mind, I'm thinking like a pastor's kid. I know that my dad and mom are back at the church and that all the parents are there. There's no cell phones, this is in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, there's no way to reach anyone. We're, we're out in rural Kentucky. So I go up to the state trooper and I just quickly say, you know, my name is, I give him my full name. We're from this church. You know, we, we've got to get word to my dad. Got to get word to my dad. So here's the blessing. When I come up to the state trooper, he's the first emergency personnel to arrive, first responder. He's gripping his car door. I still remember this with both hands, staring at the bus, like, like he's just frozen uh, for, a, for a few seconds. Eventually, at, at the same time the ambulance arrived, EMT gets his attention and immediately he just kind of clicks and starts barking orders, right? So I'm standing there next to him and I'm like, sir, this is who I am, blah, blah, blah. What I didn't know was how that would serve us that night. So my mom and dad are back home. My dad's at the church waiting for the bus to arrive. My mom's at the house. Um, my dad gets a call from one of the parents, Sergeant Gonzalez, because uh, again, we're military church. Conrad was, his son was the first off the bus. Conrad, they, they take ambulances from five different hospitals to transport kids to hospitals and they're transporting everybody, right? So 67 people and they're trying to get everyone to the hospital that they can. Uh, Conrad is the first off. He actually opened the back door. He's the first to the hospital. He calls his dad right away. Uh, Sergeant Garcia calls my dad and says, pastor, he said, uh, we are taking our kids to uh, seven different hospitals or five different hospitals. My son's at one of them. I'm going right now, bye, and hangs up. That's the message. My dad has no context for this. So he immediately calls my mom and says, something's happened. I need you here at the church. And my mom's like, well, what about Alan? You know, like our son's on that bus. He said, honey, I don't know. All I know is I need you here. He calls the whole board. I need you guys here. Parents are waiting. They start making calls. They finally get a hold of the very state trooper that I talked to. And the state trooper's first words to my dad before anything else was this. And I always break up for this because I feel like this was a God thing. He said to the state trooper, before I tell you anything, pastor, I need you to understand this. Your son was standing next to me tonight. He gives him my full name. Your son is okay. My mom said she saw my dad's face on the phone just go flush. Like, <sighs> my dad still didn't know that there were fatalities. And so his first news was that his son was okay, which at that moment, because you know, you're pastors, but your parents first. Yes. It freed up my parents to pastor mm -hmm. because they knew that I was okay. So uh, immediately the guy's like, pastor, you know, we need, we need information on who's on the bus. My dad's like, oh, the information's on the bus. And he said, well, sir, he said, there's, there's, you know, that information's gone now. And he's like, well, well, ask my youth pastor, he's there. I asked my associate pastor. And finally the state trooper says, sir, do you understand? There's multiple fatalities here, multiple fatalities. 27 to be exact. 27, we didn't know that yet. So what happened, was people collapsed in the bus from the smoke before the fire reached them. And they found the bodies between the eighth and 10th rows. In fact, they found our associate pastor. Our associate pastor actually could have gotten out through the window that's by the driver's side. They found him at the end of this wall of bodies holding two 10 year old girls in his arms. It looks like he had grabbed them and he was trying to push the wall over to run them out of the bus when they were overcome from the smoke. So this happens. 
Uh, I'm at the hospital with uh, some of the other kids. They rush us all. They check some of us out. Uh, Conrad Garcia's dad shows up, Sergeant Garcia, takes as many as they'll release into his van. I get to the church. I still don't really know what happened because it was so chaotic that night. As soon as I get to the church, it's now Sunday morning. The news vans are all over our parking lot. And that was the first time I'm like, uh oh. Is a big deal. Something's happening because there are 24-hour news fans in our parking lot right now, not local news. And I get there. My mom's the first to meet us. Gives me a hug and everything. I go in to see my dad. My dad has the, you know, again, military church. They set up a command post in my dad's office. My dad shakes my hand, doesn't even recognize me because his mind is so, like he has no, had no memory that he'd actually seen me that morning because uh, he's phone call, phone call, phone call. Uh, my mom, so it's Sunday morning, people are coming for church. The parents who were waiting that night and found out what had happened, because they rushed kids to all the hospitals, they didn't know where the kids were at. They didn't know who was where because it had all been so chaotic. So the kids who haven't returned yet, they don't know the story. Parents have been in prayer at the church this entire time. So Sunday service starts, those same parents who've been praying for their child's life for the last eight hours are still up front. My dad can't leave because he's he is in the middle of this whole hub of communication coordinating things. So my mom runs the service. She does the worship, she does the prayer time, she does the sermon. And of course, as the community is getting news of what's happened at our church, because we were the largest church in town or the second largest, everyone in the community shows up. So now our church is packed, no one knows anything. And finally, I get a list of names that I see, that, they don't give it to me, I just see it because it's going around, 33 kids that by the middle of the afternoon are unaccounted for. What they tell us is there were 14 bodies on the bus. Because those bodies, it was so hot, the bodies melted together. So all they could see were 14 is what their assumption. So I'm looking at this list of 33 names of friends, thinking 14 of these are dead and you don't know who's who. Parents who are those 33, they don't know, is my child just unidentified at a hospital or are they on this bus? But as they started separating the bodies, the number would go up throughout the day. So it went from something like 14 to 17, 17 oh to 22, gosh. finally it stops at 27. So now there's six unaccounted for and there are 27 who are dead. Uh, so my parents then had to be the ones who, as they would use dental records and identify, they would bring families into their office and they would say to them, I'm sorry, they've identified your daughter, they've identified your son. Uh, one of the men in the church, his wife and both of his daughters were on the bus and they identified all three. And so he had to be told that you've lost everybody and of course, he would later say to my parents, I'm an only child, and my parents were only children. My parents are dead. I have no aunts or uncles, no cousin, no mom or dad, now no wife, no daughters. He said, do you know what it's like to live in a world where no one's related to you? There's absolutely no one in this world that's related to me. Dang. That's the experience of people. My dad is a pastor in 48 hours, preached 16 funerals, and most of them children. Our associate pastor was his best friend. He had to preach his funeral. Our youth pastor had to preach his funeral. Uh, and of course, one of those funerals, we had eight bodies together, you know, that we just did kind of a mass mm -hmm. funeral. And then he would travel around doing these others. And so it was like being in a nightmare uh, that you can't wake up from. Yeah. And it affected our whole state because the day we went to this, you know, Kings Island adventure was youth group day at the amusement park. When the crash happened, they had to shut down the interstate. In fact, they actually had semis create a makeshift helicopter pad with their lights so that helicopters could land on the interstate to airlift kids to the hospital. But because the interstate got shut down, the news went out that night that there has been a church bus that has exploded 
and no one's bus was arriving back home to their church. So there was a time that every church in Kentucky thought it might be your, their youth group that has been hit. And so there was a massive amount of empathy in the state because for a few hours, every church thought it was them. Wow. It's our kids who aren't returning, but it turned out to be our church. Whew. What a story. When I heard this for the first time, I went to my computer and Googled it. Me too. And just wanted to know like, what can I see or read or learn about this thing that it's, it's crazy. I mean, I've never heard a story like that. I mean, I guess you read about it and all that, but I've, I guess I've never known a person that's a part of a story um, like that. And I can only imagine what, what has been, I guess my thought would be like, what's the residual impact that that still has on your life today? Like, how does that still, how, you know, this is 1988. So, you know, this many years later, what kind of impact does that still have on you every day? Well, I mean, it was formative, right? It was a formative event because as, as a young person, you suddenly live in a world where your friends have died, where you almost died, where life's fragility is like right up in your face and you are very much aware of your own mortality and how you could have a friend today and be attending their funeral tomorrow and a lot of friends. And so it was, it, now it, because it was a mass casualty event, it was something you went through with an entire community. So you weren't the only person grieving, you weren't the only person shocked, but you, you know, it did feel for years that I had these two lives. I had a life before this mm -hmm. and I had a life after this. And my life after this, I had become a very different person from my life before this. Uh, one of the struggles that I faced was, you know, I lost friends, I made it off, they didn't make it off, and you would replay in your head constantly, could I have grabbed someone on my way out that didn't get out? Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was happening at the time, but what, what, if, what if I had just done this? What if I had just done that? You would constantly replay everything you did that night to try and think, what could I have done differently that would have led to someone being alive? And then that game starts to turn into survivor's guilt, where you feel guilty for being alive because there's no reason why I should have lived and other people didn't live. And it didn't help. And, and again, this is not, this, I mean, we're, this is a messy, so we're gonna be very messy. You know, as my parents are ministering to people, I do feel like that my dad and mom receiving news that I was alive was very much uh, a, a, a gift of God to free them up to pastor. But there were still people who were grieving who in their grief would say to my parents, well, you didn't lose a child, I did. Yep. Your child made it, my child didn't. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't help from someone who has survivor's guilt. Uh, sure. To think that that has now become a burden to my mom and dad, that they can't minister to people because they didn't lose me, mm -hmm. right? And of course, that's not what anyone means, but it's something that it took me a while uh, to have to deal with that. Uh, did you talk about it with your parents? Did they Were they open about it or did they kind of just... They, they were open, but at the same time, they were dealing with this with everybody. So they spent years of their ministry ministering to people who had experienced the worst kind of crises and it's, it's a whole community of people. Mm -hmm. And so they're going from burn units to funerals, to checking up on people, to having people over for lunch, for supper, to constantly being in people's lives, which is a good thing. I was there, we'd, we'd had counselors. Uh, we actually have a ministry in the Assemblies of God called Emerge Ministries, which is a fabulous counseling center. They contacted our church and said, we're gonna give you all of our counselors for free. Wow. And every single person at our church, every child, every parent, every they all had free counseling, grief counseling. And, and it became a lifeline for a lot of people. And I got to experience that myself. So I hate to be the, the one to ask this question, but I'm like, all right, I got two theologians right here at the table. 
my question to both of you, so smart, why in the heck, like, why do things like this happen? I know that there are people listening right now who would just be like, why? Like, wh- these are youth group kids, like, the pastor's driving the, if God's in control, then how does, like, why do things like this happen to, to good people, to innocent people, to, to children, to you? Like, why does this stuff exist? And, and how are we supposed to, like, see God through all of that? You know, bad things happen to good people simply because bad things exist. And bad things exist because all of us have the freedom to do bad things. It just seems like, you know, like, okay, the drunk driver thing, that's happened, you know, drunk yeah, yeah, yeah. hitting people. But then, like, hits the bus, then because the axle swings underneath, that pops the gas tank, then the gas tank pop. you know, like, it just seems like how can so many things line up so perfectly for such tragedy? We, we live in a cause and effect world. And I think sometimes we, we want this idea where we think that God should keep cause and effectness of life away from us, right? Like I want my choices to matter when it benefits me. I don't want my choices to matter when it hurts me or hurts other people. And I, I want God to somehow intervene. You know, if, if, I, if I win a marathon, I want to give God praise for allowing me to do that. If I run out into traffic and get hit, why did God allow me to get hit, right? I mean, we, we, we basically are rebuking God for the cause and effectness of the world he created. But the problem with that is that the cause and effectness of the world is also why good things happen. And that what I'm asking God to do in a sense is change the entire structure of the world for me in this one moment. And certainly God is able to protect, God is able to do miracles, God is able to reverse things, but the great reversal itself doesn't really happen until the resurrection. Jesus Christ still dies on a cross, right? Uh, Why does that good thing or why does that bad thing happen to that good person? And the answer is because that's how the world is. God can reverse that and one day he will reverse all of that. But in the meantime, we live in a cause and effect world and my choices matter. They have weight. The choices of a factory worker absolutely have weight, even if it could lead to the devastation of lives. So Lauren, how does this for you play out in the most practical level? Like consider the listeners we have, who knows what's happening in the world today. One thing we're certain of is that we are all dealing with, we're all dealing with messy things in our lives, all of us. So how does that play out for like the everyday listener out there who's, who's struggling with, man, God, don't you see, don't you see what's happening? Or are you aware? Do you hear me? Like, how do you think that plays out for them? Yeah, I think to, to piggyback off of what um, Alan said, that to know that we have a God who suffered, that he's with us in that suffering. So he does see us and he does know and he does care. And the hope of all things new and that God is also he's a God of redemption he restores and he redeems and he renews and so I think that can happen in the here and now it's in the the now and the not yet so we Mm. have to live in the now but we also have the hope of the not yet and the what is to come yeah that's good yeah that that's the that's the tough part of church leadership right is helping people navigate through those emotions and really help them learn to take their doubt off of God and and this whether if whether it's hatred or just like how do you view God when you feel like he's responsible for your pain right it it could be hatred it could be I'll just avoid you I'll just pretend you don't exist anymore It's, it's helping people navigate from those emotions and to actually realize no he's actually for me he's with me 
He, he loves me. He's not the culprit of this. You know, he didn't create yeah. this situation for me. It's we blame thing. God for so much of us. Yes. Right. That, yeah. that what I did, what someone else did to me, God should have kept this from happening. But it is impossible to imagine how God would do that without God keeping all the good things from happening. Mm -hmm. Because we're all sharing the same world. We're all living interconnected together. And God is actually using us to make the world a better place. But I, I'm guilty of it, Dr. Tennyson. I just got to be, I'm guilty of like, there are some things that only he could stop or only he could keep from happening. And it, it plays out into how I, you know, in, in my behavior. So I think it would be a great thing to help our listeners. Like what would be your final way of helping the person who's listening today, who's, who's really battling with holding on to something um, and, and God being the one that ultimately gets the brunt of of that emotion, you know, like they're staying away. Maybe, maybe you're listening today and you're staying away from church because you're upset at a set of circumstances that, that took place in your life that you didn't ask for and they came anyway, or something happened to your child or something happened in your marriage or something happened in your body. Like there are just so many circumstances where we can only look and say, God, you're the only one that could have stopped this. Like what, how do we help the person listening today right now that's saying, yeah, that's absolutely me. The only thing that got me through that time was God. And while it would be easy and convenient to blame God for my misery, it was actually God who was the source of my salvation. It was God who gave me the reason to hold it together, to be able to get through this, to recognize. In fact, one thing that, that this taught me, because you've asked what was the impact. There was the negative, there was also the positive, and, and it, it, doesn't make, it doesn't justify the situation. But the positive was I realized that my faith in Jesus really was strong enough for the whole world being ripped out from under me that God really is enough, that I could turn to God. I saw our community come together, parents who had lost everything, even the man who lost his wife and two daughters, how his life was actually put back together. All of that was happening under faith. All of that was happening with the holding on to God. And it it's, makes sense why we do it, but it just is the struggle that at the moment that we turn on God, we're turning on the very thing that will help us turning on the very one who will lift us out, turning on the one who can become the source for our salvation. And so that taught me that, wow, trusting in Jesus is actually enough to get through the hardest thing life can throw at you. And it wasn't just I got through it, I saw an entire community get through this. And there were two things I wanted to highlight, one for the person who is just struggling, a passage of scripture, and I'm gonna proof text, but this is how it was used in my church. Uh, my parents, uh, this was something given to them and it was what they relied on every single day. And it was just Deuteronomy 20, 33, 25. And I'm gonna do the King James version because that's what we did when we were in church was <laughs> as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Uh, the NIV version, your strength will equal your days. But the way that they use that was simply this, we only need the strength for today. We don't have to carry the weight for tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. All we're asking for is for the strength of today. And God has given us that strength for the day. And what you find is when in faith you get up and face today, and then you do that again tomorrow, and then you do that again tomorrow, eventually you come out of the crisis. No crisis lasts forever. One day eventually you come. It's that one dayness, but recognizing God is the strength. I don't, I don't have the strength to face today, no, but God has the strength for you. Yeah, Depend on him, trust in him. It's like the, the new mercies, right? They come every day. I say good thing because I've used all the mercies up for the day. <laughs> Need thank new God ones for the next day. Thank God there's more to come. Right? Yeah. yeah. 
So your strength will equal your days. And if you're someone who is dealing with people in your life who are going through this level of misery, and you say, I have no idea what to do for them, here's, here's the other lesson that I saw in our church, and I'm going to give you an entirely made-up statistic. This is made up. This is not true. But, 73% but, of all stats are made up. Okay, well, that's, that's exactly true. <laughs> 70% of ministry is presence. 70% of ministry is presence. And that's made up, but what I mean by that is simply this. Ministering to someone is simply you being there, mm-hmm. regardless even of what you say. Because people in grief will rarely remember what you actually said to them. What they will remember is that they weren't alone. So I guess one good takeaway from just that alone is if you're listening to this and you know somebody who's going through some really difficult times right now, why don't you just make it a point to go and be with them? Be present and you don't have to give them answers. And this is the other thing. So you ask the whole difficult problem of evil question. They're like, well, I can't deal with that question. You don't have to. Don't. Don't. Because here's the thing. It's not up to us to solve the mystery of other people's pain. Mm. That's not our job. That's alleviating. And, and if it was, we're going to be bad at it because we don't actually understand the mystery of other people's pain because yeah. we're not there. Yeah. Don't try to solve that. Just don't leave them alone in their pain. Be present. When you're in pain, be day by day. I've also Recognize heard people that. say, don't ever say, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly yeah. how you feel. Like, Nobody knows that. That's the worst way to jump into the hole with somebody. Just, you don't know what they feel. You don't know what they're going through. And what you can easily, easily do is fall into the trap of comparing pain to pain. Yeah. So I've heard two grieving people and the one, well, I lost one child. Well, I lost two children. Well, that is a terrible game show, right? I mean, I mean that, that is not a game we want to play. Yeah. You, whatever you've lost, you've lost. Yes. Yeah. Loss is lost. Just because it's, it's, it's someone else may have, have a different set of statistics doesn't mean you haven't experienced the worst thing in your life. That's right. That's right. What a, what a, well, first of all, what a fast 30 minutes or so. I think we've gone past our 30 minutes, but um, so much good stuff in that. Can I say one other thing? Of course. Because we're, we've gone past 30 yeah, minutes. We might we're, well. we're at this point, we're committed. <laughs> I'm going to get messy. Okay. Can I get really, really messy? Please. Okay. Because this is, this is the last thing. So, so three points I just wanted to give. One was the day to dayness, one was the presence. For those in misery, it's day by day. For those who are ministering, just remember presence. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing about community. Because what got us through this as a church was the fact that we were a community. We were a vibrant community. People relied on each other. People turned to each other. They didn't leave each other alone. So people told my parents when this happened, well, this is the end of this church, right? Because how does a church come back from that? You're, you, buried, oh, you're, you buried your youth group, right? How does a church come back from that? We had a church of around 1,000 when this occurred. Uh, when my parents finally left the church a few years later, the church was around 1,000, right? I mean, in fact, it was probably 800 and we grew to 1,000. So the church actually grew through this and we didn't do anything exceptional because the rest of our time was there was just holding on. Yeah. We had to go through the trial because the drunk driver survived. Wow. So we had to go through the trial. All the survivors had to be on the witness stand. And so now my parents had to walk through that. They walked through multiple graft surgeries, multiple burn units. You know, that was the rest of their ministry was walking with people through that, but the church survived. Then here's what happened. Here's the messiness. The pastor that followed my dad was this young, charismatic, phenomenal preacher, one of the best preachers you'll ever hear. Uh, He was so charismatic that he won the entire board over. He warned the church over. They were going to build off what my parents had done. They were going to move beyond this accident, which, you know, you want to grow. We were going to, he was having multiple affairs 
with women in the church over the next few years. In fact, it, it's ridiculous, but but when you hear the number of women he actually had affairs with, you're like, how did he actually accomplish that logistically? Yes. Like not even morally, but how did, how did you do that logistically? That's ridiculous. And then you find out that he was doing all these things that had red flags. He was taking, he's a married man, had a, had a daughter, he's taking women on bicycle rides alone, bought motorbike, he had a motor, a bi, uh, not a, mo uh, a bike. Motorcycle. Motorcycle, thank not, you. Not tandem. Not tandem. <laughs> no, no, they would hold on to him. I mean, they would ride with him and he would say, you know, I'm doing counseling. I'm doing, he and you're like, did no one pick up on that? that and so no, evil. the whole board, everybody, it just, he had such a hold on the church. But here's the thing, when it finally came out and you had something like maybe 17 women who all thought they were the pastor's special secret and didn't realize they were just another conquest, the church went from a thousand to 100, hmm. which is exactly what people told us would happen in the bus crash. And here's my lesson, what the deaths of 27 people couldn't do, the sin of one pastor could. Wow. And why is because in that sin, the community lost its trust. Yeah. In the bus crash, we didn't lose trust and faith with each other. We didn't lose trust in our leadership. We stayed together. But when the leader sinned, and when it turned out the checks and balances shouldn't that should have been in place weren't, and how yeah. many people participated in this, mm -hmm. the community no longer trusted. And in the absence of trust, they couldn't be a community anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you go through this kind of messiness, it's the day-to-dayness. I'm gonna to commit to just getting through today. It's the presence. I'm gonna be present with someone. It's also the trust. And when you lose the trust, you can no longer be a community. Yeah. Nothing angers me like learning of evil foul play within the church. So I'll keep from commenting on that young fella, but um, wow. Lauren, I'm gonna ask you to pray in just a moment for the listeners out there who are going to wrestle through your your ultimate message, which is you're going to have to just trust God with this thing and don't separate yourself from the one who can ultimately keep you, keep you safe, put you back together, restore you, heal you, walk with you, all of that. Dr. Tennyson, it has been an absolute joy to sit with you in this room and to hear you speak. You've got such a radio voice. Man, I actually are, have a face for radio. I was just going to, you just stole my line. You, <laughs> you've got a voice for them, radio waves. <laughs> Uh, man, what a pleasure to hear you. I love hearing how the knowledge just flows out into such practical application. I love that about you. Really excited to hear you at Cultivate Conference, this upcoming conference, our second year. You're part of Cedar Valley Church, so I know this means a lot to you as well. So thank you for your time. Lauren, it was so nice to have you with us as well. Thanks for letting me sit in. You are the Southern, what is it? The Southern Bell from the from the South? Is that what they call girls from the South, Southern Bells? That's what Sean got him. Sean got himself a Southern Bell. Is that what he got? Sure. Sean, you are a blessed man. Got a Southern Bell. Lauren, would you pray for those listening? God, we thank you for um, Alan. We thank you for his story. Thank you for his testimony. He um, is a witness of your grace and your love and your presence. Yes. God, we don't understand bad things we don't understand hard things especially when um doesn't make sense and when it's um loss that happens to people who seemingly don't deserve it god um and yet we know um that jesus suffered and we know that he um understands he he gets it when we go through bad things god thank you for the reminder that you are um a God who redeems and who renews and who restores. Thank you for the hope and the promise of um, Jesus's return. 
And um, God, I pray that you would help us um, with, for those who are in hard times. I pray that you would help them um, to take it day by day. And that um, thank you for the reminder that you give us the strength and you give us the mercies that we need for each day. And for those of us who are walking alongside, God, I pray that we would be present yeah. um, and that we would show up yeah. and that we would persist through the messy. Yes, God. And um, for our community, for Cedar Valley, I pray, God, that we would continue to walk um, in integrity and that we would lead lives um, worthy of trust and that we would continue to be community to each other and that we would lean into the messy to ultimately point to you, God, um, for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, everybody. Adios. Thank you.